Walks like an animal, talks like an animal, must be an animal. Come here, the animal, talking animal, talking animal. Good morning. This is Talking Animals. I'm Duncan Strauss. My guest today is Dr. Vint Verga, veteran veterinarian and animal behaviorist known for his distinctive approach in treating pets and captive animals that are experiencing behavior disorders. His recent book, The Soul of All Living Creatures, What Animals Can Teach Us About Being Human, is a spiritual-oriented examination of the connection between humans and animals, delivered by way of memoir and recounting a variety of his cases. Earlier this summer, Dr. Verga was the subject of a major profile in the New York Times magazine. We'll discuss his book, his single approach to working with animals and more when we speak with Dr. Vint Verga in a few moments here on Talking Animals. Later in the show, we'll speak briefly with Marilyn Weaver, Executive Director of the League of Humane Voters, Florida Chapter, with an eye toward Election Day on Tuesday, August 26th. We'll discuss the importance of voting for animal-friendly legislators and examine the animal welfare voting records of a few politicians and the League's endorsement. Also towards the end of the show is the prize for Name That Animal 2. We'll be offering a pair of tickets to see Steel Pulse, They'll be uh, performing tomorrow night at the uh, State Theater in St. Pete. Right now, let's hear an animal song from a great band, Lake Street Dive, that's performing in benefit for WMNF on November 1st at the Cuban Club. That may seem like a long ways off, but they are fantastic and red hot. And ever since their triumphant appearance on the Colbert Report, most of their shows seem to be selling out. So go to WNF.org and get your tickets today. And meanwhile, let's hear Lake Street Dive doing Rabbit Animal on Talking Animals.
That was Lake Street Dive, Rabbit Animal. Lake Street Dive, a terrific band set to perform a WMNF concert, benefit concert at the Cuban Club on November 1st. Let's move now into our chat with veterinarian and behaviorist Dr. Vint Verga with a reminder that we invite you to join the conversation by calling 813-239-9663, emailing us at DJ at WNF.org or texting us at 813-433-0885. Let's welcome Dr. Vint Verga to Talk Animals. Good morning, Dr. Verga. Good morning. It's nice to be here. Thanks uh, for joining us today on Talking Animals. So uh, from from getting pretty steeped in the uh, Vint Verga world, it, it seems like there was a point in your life where you uh, took a, a dim view of zoos. Now you work for a number of zoos on a consulting basis and clearly feel uh, they have many virtues. So I wonder if we could start out today talking a little bit about what was behind your thinking in the sort of less favorable zoo days and how your view has uh, evolved to see zoos in a, in a a more favorable light uh, in recent years. Sure. Well, I think part of that is um, uh, it coincides with the evolution of zoos themselves. But setting that aside for a moment, when I was a younger, when I was younger, and in my first years of practice, um, I just saw so many uh, images of animals at zoos that that haunted me after my visits, where I would see them in relatively restrictive exhibits. Um, their their main intention actually was to exhibit an animal. Um, and, and we're talking about 20-plus years ago. Um, now Nowadays, though, zoos have really evolved in terms of their focus, especially with the plight of animals in the wild with habitat loss and, and um, climate um, change, uh, pollution, predation, um, uh, hunting, poaching. Um, nowadays, uh, zoos have taken on the mission of trying to educate people about animals, um, serving a, a major conservation role, and also um, trying to preserve um, species that are that are suffering more and more out there in the wild. The change that happened for me personally was that even though I would still and still do from time to time encounter animals that I where I find it's the the zoo environment is to me, painfully restrictive to what I think the animal um, should have. I've got to keep in mind that I feel as a vet, my mission is to ensure and enhance the well-being of each animal I come into contact with. So if I turn a blind eye to zoos, I personally feel like uh, what I'm doing is, is ignoring the animal's immediate needs. And I feel very strongly that I'm willing to go to any zoo, regardless of the situation, um, to any uh, aquarium or, or wild animal park, if, my, if by being there, I can somehow enhance the well-being of even one animal during my visit. So in a sense, that sounds like sort of observing what would be the veterinarian's equivalent of the uh, Hippocratic Oath. Exactly. Exactly. My, I feel my, my mission nowadays in zoos is to optimize the health and well-being of every animal I come into contact with. Um, and and that, that is totally analogous with what I would do in general, pra- general practice or even back when I was doing companion animal or pet behavioral practice. What would you say your senses of the, of the public's view of zoos? I mean, perhaps not surprisingly, there's 
probably a number of people who listen to this show who are, are probably not big zoo fans and others generally, and including some that listen to the show, uh, who, who are. What, what is your own sense of when you're out and about and at zoos, obviously, um, regularly for, for these consulting uh, uh, jobs? Has there been sort of uh, the, the same kind of shift in perception that sort of matches what you described in, in your own? Or I think the, that there has been some of that, although I think that there, interestingly, seems to be a very strong um, a dichotomy or, or polarity, I think, of opinions. Uh, it seems like uh, more and more people are either very pro-zoo or very anti-zoo. And, and it seems like there's less and less people that I come across that are somewhere in the middle and seeing both the virtues and the weaknesses of, of zoos. I think that as zoos are evolving more and more in, in designing and redesigning these animals' habitats, though, the public starting to interact with the animals in zoos in a very different way. They're starting to see them in a more in more naturalistic, complex environments where they can see the animals exhibiting um, more of what we would consider to be their lifestyle out in the wild. And and as we start, as the public starts to see that, I think as as is as as is the purpose of, or one of the main goals of zoos, um, the public is starting to appreciate more and more that that zoos do play an important role in terms of um, um, conserving animal species, as well as bringing the public to a greater awareness and sensitivity towards the animals. That's interesting, because I, I think back to your sort of noting the, the dichotomy. Let, let's talk for a moment, for example, about the value from a conservation standpoint. What in terms of zoos, does that really mean how often are animals bred in zoos to be released into the wild to to boost that population where species are dwindling or, or struggling mightily in the wild? I don't think that's happening um, at a, at much of a scale at all right now. Yeah. I think what the zoos are mainly focused on is trying to maintain a diverse gene pool of animals so that they aren't getting inbreeding of the animals that are born or and bred in captivity. It's important also to notice, though, um, or, or to recognize, too, that the animals that are born in zoos um, or the animals we encounter in zoos nowadays are not wild-bred animals by far and large, but instead ha- have gone through multiple generations of captive breeding. The, these animals would not do well just being suddenly released in the wild for those people that think all zoos should just be immediately closed and and the animals left to fend for themselves um, freely. Um, it would take, just like with wildlife rehabilitators who, who work on, on an animal-by-animal basis on trying to make sure that the animals will be able to, to cope with, with nature and survive in nature, the same type of program would have to start to be instituted in zoos. So I think what the zoos are trying to do right now is maintain the diversity uh, and a, uh, of the gene pool and a gene bank for... Um, uh, for those species, um, particularly that are most endangered and um, close to extinction. Okay, so in that sense, they're, they're preserving those things, but there isn't a bigger picture attempt or even no one's even, I guess, necessarily trying to argue that, that part of that is about actual impact on the species uh, out in the wild, that it is that it is just widening the gene pool and doing as much as it can within those yeah, for the for the large majority of species, that's true. Um, I don't foresee that'll be so in the future, though. I think that there's going to be a point when that that that, that those 
that gene pool is going to need to be drawn upon. Just based on the, the rate of of um, species loss that we're, we're currently seeing on the planet. Well, because I think uh, for a lot of people, back to the uh, the dichotomy that you, that you outlined earlier, I think some of the people who, who might be anti probably, among other things, have become a bit cynical about the use of, of conservation. I mean, the thing immediately always comes to mind when this instance is Ringling has this thing called the Elephant Conservation Center, and they talk about all their great efforts towards conservation. But I think if anybody that pays much attention knows, really, that place is just stopped talking the the touring circuses and not much else as far as I can tell. So that's the thing and that's just one example but I mean conservation is is a term that that uh, gets used a, a lot sometimes with with more positive purposes as you're suggesting about the the gene pool and, and what may happen down the road and sometimes it's uh, a pretty handy term to to justify things that aren't quite as uh, Absolutely. And there you're talking about using a basically the catchphrase conservation as a marketing tool. Yeah. Um I can say that the the Zoos with which I work, um, all um, without exception, um, su- spend a an, an really surprising amount of money funding research projects and, and um, field conservation work out there in the wild. Um, and that I think that that is a, and I think they don't even um, the zoos in generally don't don't um, don't do their greatest service in terms of how they of educating them and. And providing and being their own best publicists for their goals and intentions out there in the wild. I think that, that and that probably does go back to to the two distinct views because I think there's a lot of people who maybe have already come to their own conclusion. And, and in this case, I'm mostly referring to people who are sort of anti-zoo, who may not be sort of following some of those uh, changes and some of the things that are, have evolved in the zoo settings. And some are, of course, are probably just fundamentally going to say, well, they're captive animals and uh, sort of not much beyond that. And so I'm not really that interested. But but like any things in the animal world, it's it's all about what's what's in the gray. The black and whites are, are handy for, for bantering, but... It's uh, it's a lot more complicated than that. I, I I don't know if you ever in your travels dealt with or met with uh, this woman Pat Derby that uh, had ran Paws the uh, the big um, sanctuary out in Northern California, mostly dealing with elephants, but a lot of other animals. And uh, she was on the show a few different times. And and one time I made some kind of sort of fairly glib comment about zoos and elephants and sort of in a, in a negative sense. And she like scolded me <laughs> very uh, aggressively on the air and just said that, look, that's that's not necessarily that uh, true that, that elephants and zoos can't be compatible. And again, there's a lot of people who would hold that view. But she said, look, there, there's a lot of pluses. There's a lot of zoos that are doing great work with uh, with elephants. It's just not yeah. that simple. It's not that simple. And it, the, the big thing is that it... it um, focusing on what I do in my day-to-day work, which is um, ensuring that the animals live as, as enriched and fulfilling a life as possible. And that means that they need to have an opportunity to, to exhibit a, a, a good range of what would be their behaviors out there in the wild um, and, ex- and experience a good range of the experiences they would in the wild, um, being able to, to think and explore and invent and create as they would do in their natural habitat. Um, the reality is, though, that as, as we look at the diminishing um, range and, and, and breadth of habitats for a wide variety of species out there in the wild, the animals that we would like to think are just totally free-ranging and unaffected by man are living under more and more defined boundaries by us and 
and the quality of their lives is being severely compromised. Absolutely. I mean, folks, know this is Talking Animals. If you just tuned in, my guest is Dr. Vint Verga, a veterinarian and animal behaviorist known for his distinctive approach on treating pets and captive animals experiencing behavior disorders. His recent book is The Soul of All Living Creatures, What Animals Can Teach Us About Being Human. If you'd like to ask Dr. Verga a question or offer a comment, please call 813-239-9663, email DJ at WMNF.org or text 813-433-0885. Sort of touching on what you just mentioned, a, a kind of a fundamental tenet of, of your book, Soul of All Living Creatures, is that the, the kinship we, we feel with, with animals runs a great deal deeper than, uh, hey, I sure enjoy hanging with my dog or even I sure enjoy looking at that tiger at, at the zoo. It's sort of your belief that, that what accounts for the more profound attachment we feel towards animals has to do with our souls connecting with their souls. For those who haven't had a chance yet to read the book, can you kind of ex- expand on, on this notion? Well, uh, if we look even at the, the, at the Latin root of, of animal, which is animalis, um, it, it come, it, what it refers to is a vital, essential um, life force within a being. And, and if we look at the current definition or at the Latin original intention, it's, um, it, it relates to any being. It didn't say the vital living force within, within a, a human. And yet we, we, and what we're talking about, or what that translates to, is in essence the, the soul. Um, there, uh, there are very few people that I come into contact with, um, keepers at zoos, um, dog and pet owners at home, uh, people that work in, in wildlife rescue organizations. If they have any contact with an animal for any length of time, for more than just a, a, a passing um, acquaintance, um, they start to recognize that that animal has a unique identity and personality that, that is very distinct from the other owl or dog or, or giraffe that they've, they've seen before or that they've worked with before. And in that unique identity and personality relates to the animal's um, perception of who they are in the world. Uh, I have no doubt from my work with, um, with zoos as well as with um, dogs and cats and other companion species across a wide wide range of species animals have a sense of self-awareness a sense of identity and that that used to be considered to be a controversial issue nowadays um, particularly in the last few years since the the Cambridge declaration where prominent scientists from around the world started to recognize maybe we're dragging our feet in science um, uh, people have been really starting to acknowledge and speak more to the fact that animals are self-aware beings with with a sense of of purpose and and intention in their routine day-to-day lives and that's what that's what i'm talking about when i'm talking about an animal having a soul they they have their own unique perception and identity and sense of of purpose in the world they aren't automatons just um living out their biological process. That Cambridge Decla- Declaration was notable in so many ways because there are a lot of people who I think had had, had thought some of those very things that were that were uh, issued in, the, in that declaration, but sort of whispered them in hallways or off the record just because it seemed like uh, to fly in the face with a lot of the, the more scientific view uh, of sure. animals. <laughs> and that was me in my early veterinary career. And then I, get to, I got to an age, quite honestly, where I, uh, first of all, as with the zoos, where I said, you know what, I can't ignore what's there now. What I'm doing is ignoring the animals that 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 could could benefit from my working with them. But but more importantly, and on a bigger scale, I said, you know what, I can't 
can't sweep under the carpet what I feel is very true. And at some point I said, I don't, I'm not going to worry about what other people think. I need to speak what I know is, is true from all all the years I've worked with animals. All right. Well, let's uh, let's uh, bring some other voices into the conversation. First of all, there's an email that came in more when we were talking uh, about zoos, just in the interest of, again, presenting uh, the uh, the vehement, apparently anti-zoo faction. There's This email says, zoos are animal concentration camps, exclamation mark. It's like animal Auschwitz. So there's that. So let's uh, let's take a call, though. And uh, hi, you're on Talking Animals with Dr. Vint Verga. Yes, is this me? Yes, go ahead, please. Yes, um, I just turned in, and, and for one, I, I'm curious. This gentleman said that animals invent and create things. That, that to me, was pretty absurd. Um, and then uh, the zoos are an educational tool, and to talk, to say that one is an Auschwitz, let me just say that the, they they do their very best to attend to every detail and they give them the most nourishing food and in this day and age they try to keep them engaged and intellectually stimulated and, and um, do the best they can and we are the top of the food chain and these uh, we have dominion over these animals and, and as long as we're not abusing them I don't see the problem with having a zoo. So there you go. Okay, cool. So was that just your comment or did you have a question specifically for Dr. Berger? As well. inventing and creating things. Oh, I'd really like to, him to expand on that. I thought that was absolutely hilarious. Okay. So go ahead. Thank you. All right. Thanks for your call. All right, Dr. Virgo. Well, uh, that was certainly uh, covered some interesting ground there. But um, if you'd like to respond to his uh, comment about the inventing and creating part. Well, everything I know from the um, as part of a um, from from the beginning of my formal education in veterinary medicine and behavioral medicine. Everything from the neurophysiological level and micro neuroanatomical level up to the ethological level, where we're looking at animals um, as a species in their habitats, in populations and in groups and in their natural surroundings, um, shows the dramatic, um, overwhelming similarities between different animals' brains. Yeah, we all have different cranial capacities. Um, the size of the brain doesn't necessarily uh, correlate um, directly with the intelligence as we may define it as humans. And I think that more and more animal researchers out there are recognizing that, that we can't define an animal's being intelligence in the world based on what we define as human intelligence. Each species has their own unique um, um, perspective and, and um, traits with which they encounter and, and interact with the world. And so we've been looking at the world with this um, human-centric focus, um, this anthropo- anthropocentric focus. And what that um, means is that we're, we're, we're trying to filter out our perceptions of the world based on what we define as being um, uh, good, bad, right, wrong, higher, more evolved, and lesser evolved. The, the reality is, is that from uh, from tegus and lizards and snakes I work with and, and crocodiles in zoos, all the way up to elephants, um, uh, uh, rhinos, giraffes, um, apes. Um, those animals um, uh, show every evidence that they like to interact and explore with um, their environment. Um, they, they show cognitive processes that they are thinking and, and very aware of their world. And the reality is, is that every enrichment program at every zoo I work with is focused on providing op- opportunities for those animals to interact with their world in a way in which they're able to create, 
um, um, new ways to interact with the world, to explore it, and to and, and to and to invent new opportunities to um, stimulate their own lives and minds. Uh, um, the the evidence is overwhelming. And and one of the things too that's uh, comparable that is in your book is, is that you really emphasize that whether it's zoo animals or the cats and dogs that we live with at home, the importance of giving them enrichment, giving them challenges, uh, giving them choices to make. I think a lot of us would probably think about that more readily if if there was a captive animal that's not able to do what it would normally do, and how again the better zoos or other situations like that w- would provide that. But even as I was reading the book. I thought, geez, we're kind of we're kind of slacking here with our cats and our dog. We're not giving them enough uh, enough things to in- engage them and, and to enrich them. Probably. Sure. I mean, if you think about it, it doesn't really matter what species. The evidence shows, um, the the studies show that across species, we like to explore our environment. If you or I were basically limited in our lives as we limit the lives of our dogs and cats, um, we would spend um, a good portion of our days within our homes. We would get opportunities for exercise, particularly for dogs out there. Um, for indoor cats, we wouldn't get that opportunity to exercise outdoors. Um, but whether we're looking at uh, whether we're looking at a, a farm cat that has access to a certain amount, or, or the full range of the countryside where they're allowed to explore their environment and in in, in um, look for simulation, or whether we're talking about an indoor cat, whether we're talking about a dog that lives in a high-rise in the city, or a dog that gets to go for daily um, walks in in the country over wide acreage through the woods. Um, it it behooves us as um, their caretakers, and um, uh, oftentimes what we consider their family members, to think about the quality of their life. They they can't watch movies, they can't read books. So what do they have to think about when we take off for work? Till we come home again. Um, what do they have um, to think about while we're resting at home in the evening once we've all eaten our dinners and, and we're relaxing and winding down from our days while we were out in the world? It makes sense. And, and kind of on a, on a parallel note, just because I, I think this seems like sort of a life and career altering moment for you, I wonder if, if I can ask you to sort of recount what happened the, those years ago when you were treating a, an injured dog named Pongo. Well, I met Pongo um, three or four years into practice. I, I was working as an emergency vet um, at that time in in um, the Central Valley of Oregon, the Willamette Valley, and, and um, it was a it was a November night where um, uh, the waiting room uh, uh, was was filled with a, a variety of different animals uh, of different species, even uh, and um, all, all waiting their turn for um, emergency care and treatment. And um, Pongo was a uh, flat-coated retriever. Uh, that was rushed into um, rushed past all the other patients in the in the waiting room, straight back to the treatment room of the emergency hospital, um, which usually is a, a sign for the doctors that that you need to stop what you're doing and rush back to this patient's side. Um, Pongo had been hit by a passing pickup truck um, that was driving by his home when he saw uh, uh, another dog in the back of the pickup truck, and unfortunately he met with the tires and. Um, uh, was was um, was hit by the car or the tr- the pickup truck. When I came to Pongo's side, he was in critical condition. Um, his gums were pale and gray and tacky. Um, his pulse was so weak I couldn't could barely feel it in his um, in his paw. Um, he wasn't responding to anything that um, that I um, did um, to try to get his attention or even to his. Um, 
uh, families um, stroking his um, head and calling his name. And I knew that he wasn't long for the world. Um, I, I immediately, of course, um, provided him with intensive care, and um, we tried to get him stabilized as, as best we could while we did um, diagnostic tests, x-ray, blood work, and so forth. And all the tests, interestingly enough, didn't show anything that would account for Pongo's critical condition. Um, there were no broken bones. There was no... no um, um, bleeding that I could find in his abdomen, made no major organ function. His heart and lungs and chest um, were working just fine. And yet he, he was um, definitely um, on death's doorstep. Um, I, I left him in the care of my nurses as I tended to, or technicians as I tended to the rest of the patients through the night, and kept, kept on checking on him. And nothing seemed to really change in his condition. Um, by the time I was finally um, done with um, the evening's work, about 2 or 3 a.m., I sank exhausted um, to the floor in the run where Pongo was resting. And at a loss to do anything else for him, I, I just sat with him while I worked on my stack of medical records. Um, it, it, um, but something very interesting happened in that hour, um, that, uh, and that was that... Um, uh, at the beginning of the hour, I sat there um, next to an unresponsive dog that, for all intents and purposes, was no better than six, seven hours before when I first saw him when he was admitted to the hospital. But over that hour, he started um, edging closer to me, um, nudging my leg, eventually resting his head in my lap, wagging his tail, and licking my hand. I hadn't done anything medically for Pongo. I even reviewed his charts to make sure that nothing had changed in the past few hours in his care. So the only thing that I could come up with that, that could account for that dramatic shift of him returning back to the world as we knew it was the simple connection that I made with him, sitting by his side, talking with him, and offering him some care and attention and companionship. And if I'm not mistaken, that served as a as kind of a pivotal moment for you, right? I mean, some of thinking about Pongo and how that worked and how he responded seemed to kind of get you spinning in a slightly different, or at least was a factor in, in getting you heading in a slightly different career path. If I'm not mistaken, it, it, it was a it, it was. You're absolutely right. Except I would say it was it was dramatic. It left a huge impact upon me, and I realized. In spite of all my science and medical training, I saw the value and the importance of connection. And that relates to what we were talking about earlier about uh, our kinship with animals and our connection with them. I feel that there's a lot more to that connection than we even fully appreciate right now. That story, and, and it's kind of clear from your book, if not your work overall, that you're, that you're really a seeker. Is that fair to say? And, and if so, when did that begin? Oh, yeah, I think that's very fair to say. I think that probably that began in my childhood. I think that I've always been looking for more. I've certainly felt that that um, uh, my my role in the world and my my perception, um, my experience with other other beings. Um, for me, I often feel like I somehow connect with animals a lot easier than I I do with with people. Um, I, I I I've always been looking for what what um, what is at the root of that? What, what, how can I 
relate to the world and what is my purpose in it? And, and again, because there's been a number of additional emails, I may have I may have sort of inadvertently skewed uh, the beginning of the conversation. We've gotten a few more emails about zoos, and I just want to say that this isn't a pro uh, zoo uh, lobbying uh, effort as much as acknowledging that zoos exist and that, as Dr. Berg explained earlier, uh, because they do and because there's animals that need help in one way or another, that's part of what his practice is. And, and this sort of connects, I think, directly to what we're talking about in terms of the Pongo story and being a seeker, because uh, anyone who's had a chance either to read the book or read the New York Times magazine piece or whatever knows that you really you spend a great deal of time with these animals and really try to sift through what's going on and try to make their lives better. Often that's by really sitting and thinking about what they're thinking and what they're struggling with. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, and the way in which I do that is by taking every opportunity I can. So I, I think that when we were talking earlier about about zoos, what, what really was underneath that, that whole conversation was, what about those animals that are currently in zoos? Um, what can we do to best, best um, care for and, and ensure that they live uh, as, as rich and full a life as possible? Um, I think the question um, also very much is, 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 I think, an equally important question that is not being attended to nearly as much as it needs to is what is the richness and quality of lives of the animals out there in nature? And the reality is, whether we're talking about polar bears or elephants um, or, or of uh, any number of endangered species, the reality is is that these animals are living um, very restricted, defined lives now by humans, um, painfully so. In in the future, looks looks um, very very troubling to me when I think about um, our children and what we're leaving um, um, behind for them to deal with. Um, not to mention um, um, the rate of, of extinction of of species and what they're even going to have the opportunity to to encounter out there in the wild. It's a very complicated situation, and as you've kind of noted now a couple times, meanwhile, the animals that, that are living in those zoos, uh, someone needs to tend to them, and sometimes that's just on a veterinary basis, and there's people to do that, but sometimes there are larger behavioral issues, and you're often the guy that you know, that they call in for that, and, and more to the point, you're the guy that often kind of comes up with a solution to make those uh, those animals you know feel better or, or, or move beyond whatever kind of was... was uh, plaguing them and and as you also point out there sometimes there's animals that I think it's was it sakari there is something I'm trying to remember but the, sometimes animals are their their spirit or their soul was was just maybe too distant for, for you to reach, either from grief, from losing a mate or something else. And sometimes all you can do is your best. And, and sometimes that doesn't necessarily bring the animal all the way around. Yes. And, and certainly that's not unique to zoos. I see animals in, in my behavior companion animal practice um, that go through um, the same stages of grieving and loss when a family member, human or animal, is, is, is lost to them. Uh, I've seen it when um, kids go off to college or, or people move and go away to another country and leave um, their dog or cat with, with other family members. Um, it all relates to the sense of, of connection um, that we have with these animals, which brings us full circle back to the thing we were most recently talking about, this, this kinship that I think that regardless of where we're going to look, whether it's in a zoo or in nature or in our own home with our dogs and cats, I think what we need to do is, is bring a greater sense of awareness 
and sensitivity to um, to the, the the depth and quality of these animals' lives. Absolutely, you you've obviously devoted yourself to that in in uh, in all kinds of ways, and and um, wish we had more time to talk because there's so many other uh, fascinating things that this connects to. But uh, but Dr. Verga, thanks for making the time to join us. We've been speaking with Dr. Vint Verga. Um, his book is "The Soul of All Living Creatures: What Animals Can Teach Us About Being Human." Uh, he has a website, Dr. Vint V I N T Verga V I R G A dot com. Thanks so, so much, Dr. Verga, for speaking with us today and and for your great work helping animals. Thanks so much for allowing me to join you. Thank you. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye. In a moment or two, we'll have a brief chat with Marilyn Weaver, Executive Director of the League of Humane Voters, Florida Chapter, about some things we should focus on for Election Day, Tuesday, August 26th. Right now, let's step into the Talking Animals Comedy Corner. It's sort of a related note to some of our conversation with uh, Dr. Berger. SeaWorld is in the news again. In fact, we'll be discussing a new gambit from uh, from that corporation a bit later in the Animal News and Announcements portion of the show. With that in mind, though, here's Ron White with a relevant piece called Killer Whale on today's Comedy Corner. I'm talking animals. Early last year in Florida, at SeaWorld of Florida, an animal trainer was killed by a killer whale. Huh. <laughs> Turns out there's a reason they didn't name them ocean ponies. <laughs> Some things are exactly as they seem, folks. Killer whales kill. Pilot whales wear dark sunglasses. I'm not sure how the sperm whale got his name, but I'm not getting in the pool. That whale got his job back. They put that whale back in the show. Now, when I first saw it on the internet, I mean, this will be world news. It wasn't even news at all. They put the whale back. This, this whale killed three people. This is a serial killer whale. And he got his job back? If that would have happened at SeaWorld of Texas, that whale would have gone straight to the electric pool. And that's just a regular pool with a toaster thrown in it. That was Ron White with a piece called Killer Whale, taken from his CD, A Little Unprofessional. Moving forward, Marilyn Weaver is the executive director of the League of Humane Voters, Florida chapter. Election day on Tuesday, I thought it'd be a timely to speak with her. So let's welcome Marilyn Weaver to talk animals. Good morning, Marilyn. Oh, good morning, Duncan. It's a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks. Uh, thanks for joining us. So let's uh, at least briefly find out what is the League of Humane Voters. Well, um, about two years ago, a little bit more, I began reading uh, a book called Get Political for Animals and Win the Laws They Need, uh, written by Julie Lewin. And that was the goosebump reaction that propelled me to organize the League of Humane Voters, because my motto is think globally and act locally. And I realized that without local animal protection laws, we could not change the ongoing conditions and problems that just keep repeating and repeating. I believe that working locally is the most effective way for us to actively affect legislation for animals. So the primaries customarily have low voter turnout. Midterm elections have traditionally had 10 to 12 percent, not more. And in the Tampa Bay area, this election is projected 
to have a 20% voter turnout. That means those who vote decide the candidates who will be on the November 4th ballot. Choosing who your candidates will be, to me, is the most important part of voting. Getting stuck with candidates that others voted for, but you didn't, takes away your meaningful participation in the vote. So I realized that I had to mobilize the animal vote, as our voter turnout could most certainly, definitely influence the outcome of the elections, especially in the primaries and the midterm elections because there's a lot of us animal advocates out there. For sure. With that in mind, and with Election Day uh, less than a week, it's a week from Tuesday, of course, the 26th, let's, let's look at the importance of, of, of not only voting, but, but voting specifically for those that have good animal welfare track record. Are there some, some particular politicians or races that you think uh, we, we need to be extra mindful of? Yeah, so on our website, uh, www.lohv-fl.org. We list our endorsement of those legislators who have or in the future will work with us on passing meaningful animal protection legislation. So what I do is I encourage people to check our website, which will continue to update on our endorsement or non-endorsement of candidates up until the November 4th general election. So one of the um, what I call good endorsements is Ken Hagen from Hillsborough County Commissioner because he voted for, he's not running for election right now, but he will be. Um, he voted for our proposed no unattended tethering ordinance, which was passed in Hillsborough, and he's been very active in seeing productive changes at Hillsborough Animal Services. He continues to be an ongoing champion for our companion animals, so we're very pleased with him. And Pat Mulary is a Pasco County Commissioner. She's been phenomenal and instrumental in helping pass the Pasco County Anti-Tethering Ordinance. As, and she, as well, is making meaningful changes at Animal Services. She's been wonderful. Now, I have, a, like, a qualified non-endorsement, uh, which is very current right now, in Manatee County. Commissioner Carol Whitmore has been a wonderful animal advocate in the past few years regarding anti-tethering legislation and support for an animal services no-kill resolution. However, her failure to speak recently and ask for or demand accountability at Manatee County Animal Services for their part in their continued release of animals to Napier's rescue after they were cited in a sheriff's report, 500-page report for animal cruelty and fraud is a very big disappointment to many of her constituents who have been reaching me. People had been complaining for 10 years about the abuse and cruelty at the so-called rescue. Um, however, three other Manatee commissioners have come forward with a call for accountability from the director of Manatee Animal Services. And I personally tried for over two years to get the attention of the powers that be to shut down this horrible place. So even though Commissioner Whitmore has done great things, she's not continuing to hold accountable the very agency she supported. And that's a big disappointment. So there are many, many uh, different either senators, representatives, commissioners that we endorse in the various counties all over Florida. So I encourage people to check our website. And if they go to where it says legislation and hover over it, they can see below those legislators we endorse or don't endorse, and it'll bring it all up. And one thing that I, I noticed that I thought was interesting, because you, you've sort of said some favorable things, and the, the, someone that's not, not as uh, getting a, a favorable endorsement, but back to Hillsborough County for a moment, uh, I, I couldn't help notice that uh, one of the rare sort of undecided uh, choices by uh, the League of Humane Voters was, uh, was Commissioner Victor uh, Christ. Do you want to address how someone sort of 
that ends up sort of right in the middle of, of your organization's right. view of... Uh, I, I don't have my website open right now, so I have to refresh my memory of the reason why. Sometimes um, they'll vote for one thing and not another, and we right. have to decide. Well, I can help yeah. you with that. Yeah, I think one of the, the pluses was voted for the non no unattended dog tethering thing, but against the Be The Way Home plan. Right. So yeah. that, I guess, kind of gives him a split uh, split score from the League of yes, Humane exactly. Voters. Yeah, exactly. He didn't support that, and that was something really that the animal community wanted and is worthy of trying because, you know, the other things um, weren't working that well, and why not try something and see if it works? If not, we go back to brainstorming and try something else. You never stop trying to make things better. Sure, you know? sure, sure. But as we know and, and talk about frequently over the years on this show, legislation is so pivotal to really get some changes made and, and sometimes give things more teeth that and maybe didn't I'm, have them. I'm so glad you said that because all I've been doing animal work for over 25 years and fighting the same battles all the time. And it was when I read this book that the lights went off and I said, I can't make any changes unless we have laws to back up what I want. And that was the, the pivotal decision. I have to stop doing all these other things, get organized, and get the legislation so that when people find abuse or whatever it is, we have something to use to get things done. And most people are not interested in legislation. They find it boring and tedious, but you have to pay attention. And any time you vote for a bill that has an animal-friendly name on it, you just don't vote for it. You read it because there are some bills that will be detrimental if you vote for them. And they have a good name, don't have good provisions. Yeah, I think we've all uh, sort of learned the hard way that, that sometimes the way a bill is phrased, what you're voting for is actually the opposite of what you might first think yes. uh, it's accomplishing. So, yes, yeah. it, it was when I was supporting the World Wildlife Fund at one time because it was a conservation agency. And then I found out that they promote hunting and that they want conservation so that there are animals there for people to hunt. I was aghast. I told people this, people who were giving them money, and they said, I didn't know that. So you see, you have to be careful. And, and the same thing with the comments made about the zoos. There are good zoos and there are bad zoos. There's not just all good zoos. And it sounded like they're doing a wonderful job. They're conserving. Well, what are they actually conserving? Because they're not keeping the population alive in the wild. Um, and the primary issue of what the problem is for wild animals, the encroachment on their environment is because there's overpopulation of humans. And you never hear that mentioned. I never, we never talk about the overpopulation of people. Our animals would be better off if there were less of us. We've got to get that hum, uh, human spay and neuter plan uh, developed, yes. uh, Marilyn. Yeah, I'm I know we're going to work big, on that together. I'm yeah. such a big proponent of spay and neuter, as you probably know. Sure. Because I'm working on an ordinance in Pinellas County now to get trap, neuter, vaccinate, and return pass because it's currently not technically legal. And uh, we've got hundreds of thousands of cats out there breeding constantly, and the issue is not being dealt with. The only way it is being dealt with is to pick them up and kill them. They've been doing that for 100 years, and it hasn't worked. So again, as I say, why not try something different? And this is being used in lots of other places, this TNVR, and it's working. So uh, currently I'm working with the commissioners on this, as well as an anti-tethering ordinance. And... Um, our voters are going to be out there voting for these people, and we're hoping they're going to support us in this. 
Absolutely. Well, let's uh, let's remind people again to uh, to get a better sense of how the League of uh, Humane Voters feels about various politicians and their track records to so go to LOHV, ha- uh, actually a hyphen rather than a dash, hyphen, but org, And all that information is laid out there in a very uh, neat, uh, easy to read and easy to follow fashion. So, yeah, Marilyn, thank you. you so much for uh, joining us again on Talking Animals, Marilyn. Thank you very much, Duncan. All right, bye-bye now. Bye. I'm Duncan I'll be offering a pair of tickets to see Steel Pulse tomorrow night at the State Theater in St. Pete is the prize in today's Name That Animal Tune. We'll get to that in just a moment or two here on Talk Animals. Right now, a little uh, abbreviated version of Animal News and Announcement. Alluded to this a moment ago, but want to at least read some of this from Associated Press. After more than a year of public criticism of its treatment of killer whales, SeaWorld said Friday that it will build new, larger environments at its theme parks and will fund additional research on the animals, along with programs to protect ocean health and whales in the wild. The Orlando company said the renovations have been in the works for some time and they are not a response to the documentary Blackfish or the criticism of the company that followed the release of the film. We'll see. Their uh, stocks uh, have definitely been struggling in the the wake of Blackfish, etc. And of course, building bigger tanks, not really the solution any of us were uh, really going for. So uh, on to Nairobi, Kenya, also from the AP. A new study by some of the world's leading elephant experts estimates that poachers killed 100,000 elephants across Africa between 2010 and 2012. The study released Monday found that the proportion of illegally killed elephants has climbed from 25% of all elephant deaths a decade ago to roughly 65% of all elephant deaths today. The author said such figures alarm conservationists because that level of poaching death leads to population decline, I'll say. All right, we'll get to some other news uh, items next week. Right now, it's time to play Name That Animal Tune. There'll be a prize, as I say, a pair of tickets to see Steel Pulse tomorrow night at the State Theater in St. Pete to the first person who can name this animal song. Let's name that animal tune on Talking Animals, 813-239-9663. Probably have to take it off the air. We've already got people calling in. They must know, so we'll take that, like I say, off the air. All right, we have just about reached the end of today's edition of Talking Animals on WMNF. We uh, hope you'll join us next week when our guest will be Matthew Gilbert, television critic of the Boston Globe, who's written a new book, Off the Leash, recounting his foray as a first-time dog owner into the colorful, uh, wild, and wacky world of dog parks. So uh, it's Talking Animals. It's WMNF Tampa, Largo, Weeki, Watching Beyond. Community Conscious Radio. Catch you next Wednesday on 9 